I would like to begin with a sacred sound. Uh, you might want to, for people who enjoy closing your eyes during things like this, I, I welcome you to close your eyes. So you get the picture. This is the real radio. It's the radio of the city that we are now in, Chicago, Illinois. <clears throat> and I'm going to venture to say uh, that this is the sound that brought us all here together in this room. Um, <clears throat> radio, podcast, audio, whatever you want to call it. I think uh, for many of us at least, um, what brings us all together in this room is a love for the tradition of using sound to tell truths and to feel feelings and to ask questions and to create empathy. It was really hard to find this. It's Gwen Maxi's. <laughs> I don't even have one anymore. Um, Johanna told me that I can't use radio as one of my five, five favorite things, so it's just the intro, it's the prologue. Um, so, uh, so eight years ago, I was sitting in the eight years ago version of this room at my first third coast, wearing a skirt that I made out of a curtain that I cut the top off of and put myself through. I was um, taking the weekend off my, week at my waitressing job, wondering uh, without that extra income how I was going to make rent that month. <clears throat> and the first thing that I saw at my first third coast was Roman Mars talking about how radio documentary should be listened to with the frequency and respect of a really well-made album of music. And when I was listening to him talk, I thought, oh my god, I am home. I have found my people. This is amazing. And then I went right up to him afterwards and asked him if he would ever consider putting sexual content on his new project, Remix Radio. And he was like, mm, probably can't do that without getting fined. And after that, I mean, it's four years later, podcasting became legit, thank God. And he, four years later, yeah, he, Carrie Hoffman and Jake Shapiro welcomed my radical sex positive radio show that, that became a podcast onto their network that was new at the time called Radiotopia. So that's, that was sort of my introduction to this world. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know my work, I'm just gonna give you like a small primer so that you're prepared for the things that you're going to hear in the next hour. <laughs> okay, so um, I started out uh, on a radio show called Audio Smut. It was about, it was women and queers telling stories about sex and love. Um, telling stories about their bodies from their own points of view. And we believe that looking within and looking at our intimate relationships um, allowed us to see magnified the issues and the power dynamics that exist in the rest of our lives and in the rest of the world. Then that show sort of grew up and became The Heart, which is a Radiotopia show. 
Um, we expanded our mission a little bit. We made it about love in general, but we were still sort of true to that mission of sort of um, subverting the narratives that are out there about who we're supposed to be. Uh, I just finished a radio play called The Shadows. It's fiction um, <clears throat> with the CBC last week, actually. Subscribe, please. Let me get those numbers. Thank you very much. Oh, this is the sweater for those who have listened. Sweater. <laughs> those who haven't, you'll, you'll find out, you'll learn. Um, okay, so anyways, there's like four main pillars that drive my motivation uh, and my work in radio. One of them is love uh, and the idea that love is, love is worth interrogating as a journalistic inquiry. Um, <clears throat> critical theory, uh, questioning power structures and how they reproduce themselves through the making of culture. Art, I believe in the art of radio and I believe that radio is art. And I believe that a woman jerking off on the radio is revolutionary. Yes. <laughs> I do believe this. Um, so I think maybe some of you in this room innately know and understand this. And maybe some of you are like, I don't totally know what you mean. Um, so I'll just tell you. Um, <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons is that, you know, it's that representations of sexuality are rarely from women's or queer's point of view, and therefore never foreground women's pleasure. And so um, it contributes to this idea that women's bodies exist only for male pleasure. And so, um, yeah, making work that foregrounds a woman's pleasure for her sake and no one else's felt just as important to us, uh, or even more important than trying to report on like economic policy or whatever. So that's where I'm coming from. Um, so over the last 10 years, uh, I have made five entire radio pieces that feature masturbation. Um, this is the first one. <laughs> the public bathrooms one. I was 14 the first time I jerked off in a public bathroom. Uh, the one about the treatments for hysteria which could be brought about by pelvic massage, water massage, or with the invention of electricity. Vibrational therapy. You get it? Uh, the one where I actually, this was an installation, I got people to actually take a bath, and I tell them the story of my first time, which was in a bath, and I, encur I lightly encourage them to think about their first time while maybe having a time in the bath. <laughs> when I was in the bathtub, the outside world did not exist. And then the Hatachi magic wand one. My hand hovered over the on switch. Low, medium, or high. Also my first meaningful use of reverb. Very exciting. <laughs> um, <laughs> And this one's my all-time favorite. Um, I plugged the sound of a recording of me masturbating with a vibrator into a, a keyboard and made it play a famous Eric Satie song. Oh, we can't miss this one. That, that one's not on the internet anywhere. That's a one time only for you guys. Um, 
So now that you know a little bit about me and we're like best friends now, um, <laughs> I'm gonna start the talk now, okay. So, <laughs> yay. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I think, you know, when people do this talk, you, you, what you're doing is you're asking yourself, who are my inspirations? Um, and I think that a lot of the time when we're asked who our favorite artists are, the tendency is to think about something that we saw at a gallery or in the cinema or written up in the New York Times or the New Yorker. Um, but I think that one of the things that we do best in radio is be inspired by the people who are sitting right beside us on the bus, the regular band at the local pub or the poet on the sidewalk. And so um, my first favorite thing is my friends, <laughs> um, my creative community. Uh, I think my friends are the greatest inspirations in the work that I create, and they are the people whose work that I will go far and wide to see. I think that for a lot of us, I mean, <clears throat> our collaborative relationships are some of the most important relationships in our lives, um, as important as romantic relationships or even relationships with our family. Um, I think that the people that we work with become our family in a way. And so I'm gonna introduce you to my family, my radio fam. Uh, the first person I'm gonna talk about uh, is named Jess Grossman. She was my first radio love. Jess and I worked together on Audio Smut in 2008, from 2008 till 2010. And um, Audio Smut used to be on a radio station uh, in Montreal. It was an anarchist radio station, so that meant that uh, it was anti-hierarchical. So what that meant was that there was no barrier to entry. Anyone could just walk in, you didn't have to pay anything, you didn't have to learn anything, you didn't have to write out an application, no one had to vouch for you. They basically, no one told you what was good or what was bad. They basically would give you a mic, they'd say, figure out how to use it, you're on the air at six. And um, so Jess and I had no clue what we were doing. We were just fucking around and learning sound by trying it out and putting it on the radio. Um, and so there, out of all the things that she made, there's one piece that is my all-time favorite. Um, she, she constructed her own microphone, like she built her own microphone, she melted wires together to create something that recorded sound, but it wasn't just a regular microphone, it was a contact microphone. And so um, a contact microphone, uh, regular microphones pick up vibrations through the air, and contact microphones pick up vibrations through solid things, like so solid structures. Um, so she built this herself, which I thought was fucking amazing. And then she attached it to a vibrator and recorded the sound of herself masturbating with it. And that is what we're gonna listen to now. <laughs> this is the real vagina monologue by Jess Grossman. Are some stories better never told? Are some stories better never told? A rumble in that dark velvet room. So that's Jess, my hero. Um, and so after she made this, we actually found out that uh, a, a woman um, at WFMU had done the exact same thing in the 90s. And I was like, that fucking bitch, I hate her. <laughs> and then Jess was like, no, no, no. She was like, fuck that competitive bullshit. Imagine a world where there's an entire genre of inside of the vagina radio. And I was like, 
touche, touche. <laughs> and, um, and I just, I don't know, I just, that was really like significant for me because I think that what we do in radio a lot of the time, even though we get competitive sometimes with each other, at the end of the day, I feel like we're all on the same team and we all, almost all the time, have each other's backs. Um, maybe it's because it's like us take all the other media, but like it's still, you know, it feels like a family to me. And I just, I love that ethos of um, more is better. Uh, so the next, uh, next member of my family I'm gonna introduce you to um, was my second great radio love. I worked with her for six years um, and it was one of the most meaningful collaborations of my life. I would say that my work is more inspired by her than anyone else on the face of this earth. Um, so uh, for the purposes of this talk, she has asked, she's begged me to, to keep her anonymous. Um, there's a piece of tape that totally changed my life and I've been copying it ever since I heard it. Uh, it was created I think in 2011 and ever since that time, every time I do a talk, every time I have a moment to myself where I'm like feeling kind of down about radio, I write to her and I say, can I please, can I please, 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 please have the Chad BJ tape? And she's like, absolutely not, that tape is dead. It's never gonna see the light of day again. Don't ever ask me. <laughs> and then one time she was like, I'll, if you give me $20,000, I'll give it to you. Um, but so when Third Coast asked me to do this talk, of course, it was my final, it was the last bastion. I was like, okay, I'm gonna ask her one more time. And, you know, lucky for all of you, she said yes. <laughs> um, some of you may know who she is. Um, I hope you do. Just. She and I both asked, we're gonna listen to this one time. You're never gonna hear it again. We're going to delete it from the record. Um, it's, yeah, one time only. She finds this tape very, very, very embarrassing and please never bring it up with her. Um, this is what we ask of you, okay? Um, so even if you forgot you ever heard this, it might be good. Um, so this is the Chad BJ tape uh, and I'll tell you why I love it after we hear. Cox. Um, what else do you call them? No. Do you ever say rod? No, not really. I don't really like rod. <laughs> do, you, do you ever say schlong? <laughs> schlong is so like Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> um, member? Do you say my member? Throbbing member? My throbbing member. My throbbing member. Not my throbbing member. Your throbbing member. Yeah, well, maybe you have a throbbing member too. I have, a, I have a mini throbbing member. A, a mini member? A mini member. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. Yeah. You think my mini member? What's your favorite yeah. word? <laughs> I really like cock. Yeah. Cock's a good one. Cock's good. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go wrong with cock. But is it so much superior to dick? Mm, no. Not really. No. And penis, just for like politeness? I guess. I don't know. Penis is like my least favorite. Really? Unless you're referring to the Pen15 Club. Pen15? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> okay, that's... <laughs> Yay. Let's all just like thank the person who some of you may know who I'm talking about for letting us listen to that. I listened to it. Yes, thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so uh, I'm naming this Pillow Talk Tape. And when I say I've been copying it ever since I heard it, um, what I want to sort of point out about this is that 
What I love is that she sort of set out to be like, she was like, cool, I'm going to record a blowjob. And I was like, uh, great. Um, and then she just had, she had the instinct to sort of, that the, that the intimacy was all the things around the thing. Like the way that they sound when they're talking to each other. Um, the way, you know, the way that we sound when we're lying in bed beside somebody. Um, I just feel like when you're in that zone, you, everything that the person says is funny, everything that the person says is cute, and I felt that listening to this, you know? I was like, everything they say is so cute. Oh my God, I just want to listen to it a million times. And um, I guess it's like the, the, the quintessential show don't tell. Like I think what's being captured in this is so much more than what they're saying. It's the way that they're saying it. And like you're just totally transported into that moment. And I just, when I heard this, I thought this is what intimacy really is. Um, okay, so next member of my fam. This is Sharon Mashihi. <laughs> the sex jokes will discontinue after this part of, we're just going through my history. But anyways, um, so this is Sharon Mashihi. She's my number one best friend, advisor in all things life and art. And the reason why I want to talk about my relationship with Sharon um, well, she inspires me in all ways. Everything she says and does is inspiring. She's very quotable. My favorite quote of hers is, um, Dear God, please help me get out of the way of this radio piece that wants to be made. I love that. Um, but so I bring up Sharon because our collaborative relationship is really important to me. Um, I think that we are really strongly encouraged to sort of be a boss or like, you know, find our voice and like, um, you know, uh, be a director and all that. And, and I, I feel like Sharon and I have a, what's special about our relationship is that we trade off being the boss. Um, we, we do this thing we call shaka every week. We trade hour for hour time to support each other, making each other's work. Um, so sometimes I'm the dom and sometimes she's the dom. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, for four hours, sometimes that four hours just looks like watching me while I write a script and saying, mm, good line, love that line, great work. And she'll just sit there quietly as I'm writing, you know, to force me to do it. Um, and other times that looks like holding her hand while she calls her mom to, to have a hard conversation. Um, and yeah, anyway, I just like, I give that to you as my gift. It's one of the most um, essential parts of my creative practice is this trade-off of the power dynamic, like sometimes being the supporter and sometimes being the supported. Um, next person in my fam, the amazing Brendan Baker. I'm just gonna give you a little preview into uh, what a hang with me and Brendan Baker sounds like. Uh, you can break down any stereo signal into its mid and side components. Uh, um, so you can separate out the things that are panned to the left and right from the things that are panned perfectly to the center. Oh my God. And because vocals are usually mixed perfectly to the center, we can just remove the center oh, and be left over with whatever is on the sides. Oh, Bakes. Oh, Bakes. Wow. <laughs> Wow. So, <laughs> so anyway, I mean, <laughs> uh, that's what we do all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, can I see your session? I want to see your session. Oh, nice color coding. Love it. Um, so anyway, um, I, I have one more member of my family that I'm going to talk about. Uh, this is the, I call her the indefatigable Phoebe Wang. Um, and I think that like, uh, for me in building my creative community, 
one of, you know, one of the things that's the hardest about trying to make stuff is that you're in a constant battle with mediocrity. You're in a constant battle with, am I gonna put my values first or am I gonna put the timeline first? Um, do I have enough time to do this work the right way? Whether that right way means according to your ethics or whether that right way means according to your artistic standards. And I think that it's so important to have people around you to help you hold yourself to your own standard. And I feel like, you know, because the, the work that we all do is hard. It's grueling. It's emotionally draining. You know, like sometimes you don't have the strength to hold yourself to your standard. And when you're around somebody like Phoebe, you kind of, you have your bases covered, you know? Like when you're exhausted and you haven't eaten all day, she's like, you can do it. Do you have, you know, this, it's worth it to hold yourself to the standard. So <clears throat> anyway, that's my fam. And I guess um, I wanna say to all of you, like, uh, you know, maybe you have your own creative fam. Um, and if you're still building it, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just like, it's been so important to me. And I feel like um, this place at Third Coast is, if you don't already have the fam, you'll find it here, for sure. Um, yeah. So anyways, uh, that was like a mini five, like it was like a five favorite things within a one. Um, <laughs> I still have four more. So <laughs> I cheated a little bit. I have a lot of favorite things. Um, it was really hard for me to pick five. Uh, okay, moving on. My second favorite thing is this art film. So this is the story of two guys from Hong Kong who go on a love adventure to Argentina and then once they get there they kind of break up and get mad at each other and they don't have enough money to go back home. And it's just about them kind of like working crappy jobs and like being in love and then not being in love and then not, you know, getting mad and then doing this beautiful dance. <laughs> um, I don't have very much to say about this. Uh, two main things. Well, A, this is Happy Together by Wong Kar Wai. And uh, I love all of his films. They're just incredible. Um, this has everything that I love in it. It has accordion music. It has, like, <laughs> you know, and a lot of his work has, like, really gorgeous strings music, too. And um, the two main things that I love about his work the first thing is that I feel like a lot of the time we think of beauty as trivial, we think of it as frivolous, we think of it as something that's extra. And in my view, beauty is what makes life worth living. And all of us are, as storytellers of whatever kind, um, you know, it's kind of our job to frame what we see as beautiful in the world so that other people can see it too. And so that's just one of the most important things in the work that I do. And then the other thing about Wong Kar Wai's work is that his representation of love is just so complete. You know, like he doesn't do the, the, the rom-com beginning, middle, end, like they hate each other, they love each other, they get married at the end and then no one knows what happens after. Like he, you know, he, he renders love in this, like he renders the mundane and the banal of love right alongside a beautiful shot like this um, that renders the romanticism and the beauty of love. And I just have so much respect for that. So my third favorite thing is 
intersectional feminism. Um, <laughs> mainly, uh, I mean, Bell Hooks is um, one intersectional feminist that has influenced everything that I've done. And I think that her writing on it um, has been, you know, she was the one, her book, um, this book, From Margin to Center, Feminist Theory, um, was the first time that I sort of encountered this idea that um, people are made up of many different identities and intersections of oppression and privilege. And um, the, the biggest thing that I took from this book is, I, I think, you know, in my, when I was younger, like I was really like, yes, I'm queer, I'm like so down queer politics, but I had a hard time, like so many women say, and I hate them for saying it now, but I, I used to be one of those women who was like, I don't know if I can call myself a feminist. And when I read this book, I realized that I'm all the way a feminist because she sort of made it clear that real feminism is about sort of dislodging, um, you know, dislodging the idea of justice from advocating for this one category and, and the idea of um, advocating for justice for everyone. And that feminism is about looking at the power structures that push some people up by pushing other people down and the histories and the legacies of those structures and committing yourself wholeheartedly to breaking them down. Um, so that is just a ma obviously a major influence in everything that I do. Um, she also wrote a book about love called All About Love where, I mean, I'm constantly quoting it. I'm saying that like if we don't know, she says that if we don't know what love is and we sort of perpetuate this this mystery that we have around love. It's so, you know, like we can never know what love is really about, like all of those things. Um, how can we ever practice love if we don't know what it is, if we don't have a working definition of it? Um, I love that. And then there's another book that she wrote that, um, that influenced me a lot in some of the work that I've done recently um, about masculinity, about how masculinity isn't necessarily the problem, but patriarchal masculinity is. And this, again, like this idea of power structures and um, dominance and like how we think dominance is a good thing and how we need to really look at that. Um, so, <sighs> I'm sort of, I'm rushing a little bit because I'm like, oh, I gotta get it all in. So many secret favorites <laughs> that I'm <laughs> gonna unleash over the course of this. Um, so anyway, uh, <clears throat> so that sort of sets the stage for this next favorite thing. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty famous quote. Uh, Probably many of you have heard it, um, but I guess even though I've heard it and I, I think about it a little bit every single day, I'll read the quote and then I'll put it on the, on the thing. So the quote is uh, from Janet Malcolm and it's the first line of her book, The Journalist and the Murderer, and this is what she says. Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of themselves to notice what is going on knows that what they do is morally indefensible. Yeah, okay, so she's, I feel like she's pointing to the fact that, um, you know, journalists, documentarians, writers, uh, people who tell stories for a living, if it, if it, if it ends up becoming your job, um, what you're doing, I mean, what people who have documentarian jobs or journalist jobs are doing is making a, most of the time, a middle class or even upper middle class income by telling other people's stories wielding prestige by telling other people's stories. Even, you know, that weird moment that we've probably all had where you're making a story about something truly awful and you're like, ooh, great tape. You know, like the, the, the grossness of moments like that um, and how we become desensitized to them. Um, so often the stories we tell are about misfortune or stories of people who are marginalized or people who will never make a middle class income. And 
I feel, you know, I don't know, I just live with the knowledge that the history of documentary and the foundations that we're sitting on are like totally fucked up. And that we have, we still have all these things that are left over from times that, you know, where it was okay to tell other people's stories for them. And I just feel like that time is over. But we, but we, we it's, the hangover is still here. Um, and, you know, yeah, this idea that if we don't tell other people's stories that they'll never get heard is just like absurd to me. Um, but, and there's so many other things, you know, there's still so many other things woven into the power that we have as journalists that I think we really need to look at. Um, and, and all of this is a big reason why I've spent my whole career telling my own stories and teaching other people to tell theirs. Um, but even then, you kind of run into these ethical questions, you know, um, because even when you're telling your own story, it involves other people. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I guess, um, even if, you know, I guess even if you don't have an audience or a show and just happen to be the kind of person who has the talent for telling stories in a way that other people want to listen to, like that, that's a power that you have. Um, because what you're doing is you're, you're framing people's lives and you're shaping the way that they're understood. And when we set out to do a story, a lot of the time what we're doing is telling a story of something bigger than the individual lives of the people in the stories also telling the story of something smaller. We're taking on, we're taking an incredibly complex thing, a person, their life, an experience that they had, and making it into these bite-sized pieces, plot points, um, these bite-sized pieces that a, an audience can understand. Um, or, or maybe it's not even just about understanding, it's about attention span. How, how, what kind of attention span do people have? And how can, we, how can we break this down in a way that people aren't gonna change the channel? Um, the fact that that guides the work that we're making about the truth of life is so unnerving to me. Um, so, you know, and especially, I guess, I mean, I'm going on a little, you know, rant here, but um, I feel like, especially with the rise of, I mean, I know that like, you know, there's journalism school and there's ethics classes, but I feel like we're in a moment where documentary is entertainment, you know? And, and that's the thing that drives us, because, like listenership, um, how are we going to pay for it? You know, like those are the questions that we're consumed by. And, um, and I think that it affects the work. And I think that especially now when like podcasting, I mean, I'm so happy that podcasting happened. I'm so happy. I, I felt freed, you know, like all of the rules that um, made it so that my work could never be on the radio don't apply anymore. I was so excited by that. Um, and I was always that person who would say, truth can never be objective. So I can paint, I'm free to paint the world from my point of view as I see fit. Um, but I guess I have to ask, how does that change when the listeners of your radical indie podcast goes from 8,000 to hundreds of thousands? Um, and how do we hold that? Um, so yeah, and I mean, I think that's something that happens to us when we've been working in the industry for a long time. People become subjects and voices become sounds in an art piece and we become desensitized. Uh, we start to sometimes care more about our career and the, and the craft than what brought us here in the first place. Um, so anyway, I think about this every day, and um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm getting to the point. There's a point. Um, I, so when I think about this quote, what I think about is a story, is, is, is one of the hardest moments I ever faced as a maker of documentary in my career. And it was a moment that came when I was making a series called No. Um, it was about the gray area of sexual consent. and. Um, yeah, I mean, the hardest moments I ever faced as a maker of things came to me when I was making this work. 
Um, some of you might know it. Um, for those of you who don't, uh, essentially, it was a very personal sort of memoir almost um, about, about consent and about power dynamics and how they factor into silencing somebody. And I interviewed lots of friends and exes of mine who were straight men, queers. I interviewed my dad. We, me and the team were just kind of aggregating material on this topic, you know? Um, like, when do you, when do you not say no and why? Um, when do you feel pressured and why? How do power dynamics factor into this? Um, and so one of the people I interviewed was a friend of mine. His name, we call him Jay. Uh, and I had spent a night with this person where I felt totally pressured in a super gross way to do sex stuff. And then I, I did it to appease him and it felt awful. And I, I never really talked to him again after that. We, we were almost best friends and I just stopped talking to him. And then years later I call him up and I'm like, would you want to talk about that night? I'm doing a project about consent. And, uh, and he said yes. And that wasn't the hardest moment. Um, and the hardest moment wasn't even when we did the interview and he totally gaslit me and made me feel like an idiot for even asking the questions. Um, what happened after I did that interview with him is he so perfectly exemplified the way that people who are being called out react that it became our golden tape, right? And so suddenly we had this amazing document of like somebody totally gaslighting someone and, and so it shifted the frame of the project. We were like, okay, this is the story we have to tell because now we have this tape. And even though I had another recording of like an actual sex act that went wrong, like documented, like that guy wouldn't talk to me, so we didn't tell that story. Um, so, so that's the backdrop. Um, so the hardest moment that I faced in the making of that project was the call that I had to make to this friend of mine telling him that I was going to tell this story and asking myself if he says, if he's uncomfortable with it, am I going to do it anyway? And um, yeah, I mean, initially I felt really weird about having complete control over how the story was represented. And so I initially I asked him to co-write it with me. I was like, what if you do your side and I do my side? It'll be amazing. And he was like, no, that sounds awful. I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, but so, so yeah, I'm going to play a little bit of that, uh, of that conversation for you guys right now. Um, I, will say, uh, I will say that, um, yeah, I guess I was just asking, like, I mean, I was terrified of telling him that I was going to do this. Um, I was also terrified of the fact, the feeling that I had that I was going to do it even if he felt uncomfortable with it. Uh, I already had the interview. It was on the record. He'd consented to being recorded. And according to what I was taught, I was safe. Um, so, uh, I'm trying to think if I need to tell you anything else before I play this. I, oh, if you like, want me to give you my blessing or something, I'm, I don't have one to give and I don't think you need it. So, like, and even if I objected strongly, I, I don't really think you wouldn't do this. So, that's I don't know, that's one of those problems where I don't, I, uh, I don't know what you want. So, if you didn't hear that, he says, well, if, uh, if you want me to give you my blessing or something, I don't have one to, get, one to give. I don't think you need it. Even if I strongly objected, I don't think that you wouldn't do this. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you being like super blunt, you know, like I, I just have to say that like, I mean, I think that like depending on how uncomfortable you are with that idea, like will very much relate, will if affect how far I go in, in fictionalizing it. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're, I'm hearing that you're sounding 
super uncomfortable and and like I don't want to do I don't want to fucking like push or violate you you know what I mean like by being like hey I'm doing this thing you totally are uncomfortable with it and I'm gonna fucking do it anyway you know what I mean like it does matter to me like how you feel about it you know and so if you're like oh my god this feels really like like shitty to me and like I don't really want to go back there and like you know uh and the only reason why I would go back there is because I want to preserve our friendship I don't think that you deserve that at all, you know? So, like, I think that... But I would like to... I would like to sort of, like, do as I said and sort of, like, draw on my own experience to sort of, like, tell a story that I think is important and interesting. I don't know how much I can kind of, like, tell you right now, honestly, dude. Like, I think we just have far different appraisals of how fucked it was. Um... It was fucked, and you were the victim, and it was fucked, and I was a horrible person. <laughs> and, like, so, you know, it's just not something that's fun for me to, to relive for the sake of your career, honestly. So that, yeah, so that's Jay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so if you didn't hear that, he said, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know. Oh, it's hard for me to see this here. Um, essentially, he said, yeah, it's not something that's fun for me to relive for the sake of your career, honestly. Um, so after that conversation, so to me, according to my definition of consent, this is really not sounding like an enthusiastic yes. Um, <laughs> like, uh, the conversation ended um, with him saying, I'm not going to stand in your way from making this. But like him saying, I'm not going to stand in your way from making this is not, this sounds great. I'm so excited for you to make this. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm, I made the decision that his comfort, that the, story, that the story was more important than his enthusiastic yes. And I'm going to be honest, I still feel kind of fucked up about that. Um, and I think that, again, I mean, like, we have these sort of, like, traditions, these ways of thinking around journalism that makes it so that, you know, somebody who signs a waiver at the beginning doesn't get to pull, get, doesn't get to pull their consent to be in it at the end, you know? Um, if they, if it's out in the world and they're like, this is ruining my life, um, they don't get to pull their consent. Um, I, I don't know. These are just questions that I have, you know? These are questions that, that bother me. Uh, and, like, how much power do people have to, to, to frame the way that they appear in the world? When is it okay uh, to take control, to take that control away from them? Um, yeah, I mean, so my longtime collaborator, Mitra Kaboli, said to me, you know, consent about, consent within the framework of making a, story, a documentary about consent is totally different than sexual consent, um, which is a totally fair point. Um, but I guess I don't know if it is different. Um, I wonder if this is one of those moments where when looking at what happens between two people in an intimate setting, what we're seeing magnified are questions we should be asking about the rest of our lives. And um, uh, yeah, I, that, that's kind of all I have to say about that. I, it's just, I don't have the answers, but they're questions that I have. Um, and so, uh, I'm going to, I'm on my last. This is sort of building on. Um, you know, I think, I don't know if we, we, all of us in this room have had a day where, you know, we're tired, right? We're dulled to the world. We are now getting in a cab because we can finally afford to do that. 
Um, and it's the end of a really long day recording and thinking and holding emotional space for people while you interview them and listen to them. And once upon a time, you were so curious about all the people that you met that you didn't know. But interviewing and being vulnerable for a living has worn you down. <laughs> I don't know if you've had a day. I'm obviously talking about me. It's, it's, it's worn me down, you know? Um, and my favorite kind of taxi ride, I might cry, you know, my, my favorite kind of taxi ride now is not the one where I talk about philosophy with the person all the way to the airport, but the kind where I sit in silence from beginning to end. Um, I don't make eye contact for too long. Taxi driver says, how are you? I'm like, I'm fine, and I look at my phone. Um, and so it was one of these days for me recently. It was a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, I get in the cab, he's chatty, I'm like, he asks me what I do. And I kind of roll my eyes inside because, you know, no matter where I am, People who are not us, they ask you what you do. You're like, radio. They're like, oh, like, what kind of music do you play? And I'm like, no. And I have to explain with a documentary radio, like a story. And, and it's just so long and annoying. And I don't have time for it. And I don't feel like it. And I just want to be quiet. Um, but so with this, this person, uh, he's, I, I, I never got his name. And I'm just so sad for that. But he said, what do you do? And I said, I work in radio. And he immediately knew exactly what I meant. He knew talk radio. He loves talk radio, you know? He loves, you know, and he's, he was like, wow, that is a great job to have. That is one of the best jobs. And not everybody gets to do that job, you know? And I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. And he's like, you are so lucky. And I was like, I forgot, I forgot, you know? And he said, you have a very important job. In my country, there's political problems. And I believe that we have to like each other to live with each other. And you, you can tell people, you can help people understand each other. And like, nobody listens to me. I'm a taxi driver, you know? Whatever my job was back home, no one gives a shit. No one listens to me. People listen to you. And at this point, I'm like sobbing, you know? I'm just like totally sobbing. I'm so ashamed that I'd forgotten all these things. And um, I'm ashamed that I didn't want to talk to him at the beginning. And I'm just like crying, crying, crying. And then we're, we're at my house, you know? And I'm just sitting there trying to get my shit together. And, and he, he stops the car and he turns around and he grabs my hand, like palm to palm. And he's like, you can do this, you know? And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I was like, thank you, I really needed to hear that today. And like, you know, and I was just like sobbing, you know? And I was just so genuinely thankful. And it was just like, he was an angel, you know? Like came out of, to remind me, and, and now I'm here to remind you that, you know, I think that we're working in the best industry ever with the best people in the world and we have influence, you know, we have power. And again, I'll say, I'll say again, even if you don't have an audience, even if you're not a host, even if you're just the kind of person who tells stories that people want to hear, like just speaking to somebody influences them, the words that we pick. And I guess it's easy to forget sometimes that storytelling is sacred and that it matters and that whether you're a news reporter or a fiction writer, whether you're an assistant producer helping stories get made or a host speaking directly to the listeners, whether you're an engineer or a fundraiser, what we do here is we work together and we work in teams 
And in these teams, we create archetypes that people live their lives by. Um, they formulate their ideas by, their dreams for themselves. Um, they measure their own happiness and success by the things that we tell and say and make. And I believe that our profession is sacred. And I, I leave you saying, may we constantly work to be worthy of this incredible power that we have. We can do this. <laughs> I say we can do this. And that was like my, my, my last favorite thing. But I have a secret sixth last favorite thing. Um, and it is my favorite song. You can close your eyes for this part too. We're not going to dance. We're just going to hold the disco balls. Um, okay, Brian, you can turn off the, it's time. Dream when you're feeling blue. Dream, that's the thing.